Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and when it comes to polyamory as a concept, I get it, totally. But I do think it's complicated because as a person who's single currently, if I have zero boyfriends and you have three boyfriends, how is that fair, right? Somebody tell me that because I don't think it is. It's kind of like if you put your straw in my milkshake while already having a milkshake or whatever the saying is. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Okay, so all joking aside, what's not a joke is that there are a thousand different ways to be non-monogamous. It can look different for everybody. You can have a partner and maybe sleep with other people together. Maybe you sleep with other people separately. Maybe only when you're traveling. Or maybe you're poly, polyamorous. For those who don't know, polyamory is part of this large non-monogamy umbrella, and it refers to people who have multiple romantic and sexual relationships, not just sexual ones, right? So you can be poly and have a primary partner and date other people. You can have a non-hierarchical relationship where everyone is equal. You can also have multiple partners in a relationship who are all romantically engaged with each other in that relationship. As Rachel Kranz writes about in her new book called Open, the possibilities are literally endless. And what I found so compelling about Rachel's book is the amount of research and reporting that went into it all about this topic, non-monogamy. So I'm gonna stop talking and we can hear from her. And from The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ&A with Rachel Kranz, author of Open. I want to start by talking about the stigma that people have around open relationships, around non-monogamy, and which you wrote a lot about. When you were first starting to explore this for yourself, how did you know that that discomfort that you were feeling was due to this stigma and not just that non-monogamy isn't the right fit for everybody? I think I didn't. And that was part of my confusion. It was like, what is the discomfort of growing beyond paradigms that I've been socialized to think are acceptable and normal? And what is the discomfort of extreme jealousy and anxiety and a relationship that's maybe not healthy? A lot of people find themselves in that situation when they're exploring non-monogamy or kink, or maybe even when they're coming into their queerness, which are all also things that were happening to me during the time period of the book. And it can get very confusing because you're like, am I uncomfortable because this isn't right for me and because this is an unhealthy dynamic or maybe we're not practicing these things in an ethical way or is it because I'm just experiencing a totally new way of being that society often still shames. And you did discover that you are extremely oriented towards non-monogamy. Was that right away or did that take time? It did feel really right once it was introduced, at least on my end, it felt very natural, but where it didn't feel very right in the beginning was once, you know, it was a kind of situation of like, okay, you can dish it out, but can you take it? You know, experiencing my partner going out with other people and feeling jealousy around them for the first time, that, that part of it did not come easily to me. I did not find I was like model, you know, polyamorous girl who's just like, oh, it's all great. I'm feeling so much compersion. I was like, I want to cut a bitch. Like I was so, I was so jealous. Part of that was about the dynamic I was in where it was also a very dom-sub relationship, most of which was uncommunicated. That put me in a difficult position where I was more prone to jealousy just because I felt so powerless. 
But on my end, it did feel very right. It felt very natural and like, oh yeah, of course there's multiple people who I love, multiple figures and different sides of myself that want to be expressed. Well, with like the jealousy you're talking about, I think that in these relationships, you just have to kind of accept that you're going to feel jealous and like that's okay. Like what tools have you found like that are helpful like to deal with and like live with that jealousy? Yeah, I think meditating, learning to meditate proved incredibly helpful because you're kind of learning to sit with extreme potential discomfort and kind of letting go of your ego in certain ways, protecting your ego. And then finally, just finding healthier relationship dynamics where I felt like I had more of a say, more of a sense of equality and like it wasn't someone else steering the situation so completely has also since helped me feel much less jealous just because I don't feel so powerless. I think that everyone thinks that like jealousy is like one of the biggest hurdles, but like in practice, like what have been like the biggest challenges for you in like poly relationships? Definitely jealousy was one of the main ones and anxiety around that. Now what I find is difficult is something that was also happening um, when I first started dating people on my own, which is that it's, it's much easier to fall into relationship with people who are maybe themselves looking for a primary partner or aren't sure that they really want to be in a non-monogamous situation. And then you can end up with them keeping you at arm's length or dumping you once they find someone they want to be monogamous with. And that's kind of par for the course, but it's also difficult because I've fallen in love with people who it's just kind of ends in an abrupt way when they find someone else to be monogamous with or felt people kind of sometimes holding me at arm's length emotionally just because they don't really long-term see themselves in that situation. And there's this kind of monogamous framework of like, either you're a more casual partner, friends with benefits, or, you know, you're going to be my primary partner, soulmate, and we're going to like live together and, and be together forever. For me, there's like an issue of time because there's only so many hours in the day. And when we talk about like jealousy, I've experienced jealousy when like my friends are in open relationships because when somebody has two boyfriends learn dating three other people, like then there's no time for any friends. No, that's real. And I think, you know, there's a saying in the non-monogamous community of like, love isn't finite, but time is. I think that that's really the truth is I found, at least for me, there's probably no limit to the amount of people I could love. The more I open, in fact, like the easier it is to love because you see how there's so many different forms it can take and you're not trying to fit people into one box of what a love relationship can look like. But yeah, time is a limited thing and that's real. But I think that also that's another reason why it's important to distinguish between polyamory and non-monogamy because there's so many things in between total monogamy and polyamory where it's like you have four partners and you're splitting your time evenly between them and I think that a lot of relationships would be much happier potentially exploring some of the ground in the middle of that spectrum or even kind of far more towards the monogamous end of that spectrum of just occasionally, you know, having threesomes or, or having agreements of what people can do when they're out of town or allowing relationships to be open maybe only on one side because people have very different schedules or they're long distance or 
dating someone together. Like there's lots of different ways to explore non-monogamy that are not necessarily like jumping right to the most challenging things of like, okay, we're all gonna date on our own and have like serious, intense love relationships with other people. There's lots else. That's a great point because you can start small. Like, hey, go make out with somebody else. Yeah. Like report back. Exactly. And also I think like you're allowed to change what you're comfortable with as you like learn new info. Like, oh, Rachel, I told you I wanted to know about everyone you sleep with. And I've decided, oh, actually, I don't like that. Yes. It has to be an ongoing conversation. That's something I've found in my relationships that it's been healthiest when it's an ongoing conversation, negotiation, and that both any people involved can feel both free enough and secure enough. And it's it's always going to be a dance because like those things are likely going to be intention. I mean, you wrote about a relationship that was very challenging in the book, but I thought like the healthiest part was like letting people know that when there are issues in a relationship, you can also like close it to like heal and figure things out and then you can reopen. And that can happen often if need be. I did that a bunch of times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think people think like once you're open and like have given the green light, like it can never turn red again or yellow even. (laughs) Yeah, I think that, you know, the podcast Multi-Amory is good for a lot of guidance on this. And they have even like a practice called Radar, which is any monogamous couple would benefit from of this kind of detailed thing of you can go through it and have kind of like a monthly relationship check-in. And I think that that's something that practicing non-monogamy forces you to do more often is take stock of things, but it's something any relationship would benefit from checking in of like, how are we doing on these different fronts right now? Like, where could we do better, feel safer or more free? So it's not like you decide exactly, like you said, to explore and now you're stuck with this and can never go back. As non-monogamy, has it changed how you think about or how much you like desired or not like marriage? Yeah, it has. I feel myself less drawn to the idea than ever before. I still crave serious partnership and and have a live-in partner, but I'm much more agnostic about the future and questioning of, is this really best for me, the script I've been sold? So like, for example, me and my boyfriend moved together in together during the pandemic and I've been living together really well. But we also talk about maybe we won't have to live together all the time and that's okay. And that doesn't have to mean you're less serious or breaking up, but kind of questioning why why this relationship escalator mentality of like, okay, you date, then you move in together, then you get married, then you have kids, and then you die. What about you just do what is best for you and the relationship and both people and allow that to be more fluid and potentially have flexibility throughout your life? I mean, I think to be able to have that conversation that you had with your boyfriend about maybe we won't live together forever, it's incredible to like have that kind of like level of honesty and like take receive that in. And I think that that is my personal biggest issue with polyamory is that a lot of people are horrible communicators and they're bad at relationships. So instead of having one bad relationship, they have two or three. Definitely. Yeah, you definitely see a lot of that. I think that's why most people who've practiced, they might have a, a story or horror stories or they get turned off by it because they're just like, okay, you're just slapping a label on something that's really just messing with people's feelings or being a player. So I kind of try to show the distinctions through all those mistakes and a sort of how not to guide, but also seeing couples and individuals who are practicing in a much healthier way and seeing like, oh, okay, here's what that looks like. 
you saying that, it makes me think about how like these labels are new. And I think like history classes, like we learn all the time about like Alexander the Great had boyfriends and girlfriends like simultaneously. And every single king in Europe had like a million girlfriends. So like we weren't labeling like the King Louis as like Polly, <laughs> but like what we're describing is like non-monogamy. Well, for men, it's not anything new. It's even in the Bible of how a woman should be cursed and made to miscarry if her husband even suspects her of infidelity. Whereas there's no such, you know, part of the Bible about a man. Quite the contrary, most men in the Old Testament have multiple wives. And so there's a long history of polygamy, but not women owning their sexuality or choices or body in the same way. And, and that's because monogamy has always been tied to the idea of women as property and assuring paternity in terms of passing down one's one's property. While we're talking about gender, you tweeted the other day and said this, Serious journalists, comma, I humbly implore you to consider taking me and my book seriously. Over five years of research and reporting went into writing it. Just because it's also sexy and entertaining doesn't mean it's also not a piece of investigative journalism as well. Is, is that like a big fear you have that because of your gender, this is not going to be taken seriously? I feel a little bit better than when I tweeted that because I'm starting to have meaningful conversations with journalists I respect like this, and I can tell they're engaging deeply with the book. But yeah, if, if there's no, you know, kind of esteemed publication review that comes out by the time the book comes out, I'm going to probably be writing about that because I think it it deserves to be taken seriously in that way. Like I say in the book, you know, why is a man climbing Everest considered award-winning journalism, which is the book Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, while a woman writing about her sex life and plumbing her most extreme psychosexual depths is confessional erotica. And I think there is very much that binary still and, and hesitance in our culture to talk about these things in a way that doesn't put them into a box of just being like salacious or silly or light or women's issues. And it's like a big part of the political statement of my book is like, no, I am both those things. The Madonna whore binary is false. I did over five years of reporting and research and serious immersion journalism in living this story, dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews and this book is also going to turn you on in certain moments and read like a novel. And even though it's a true story, it's going to be sexy and compelling. And both of those things are not contradictions. That's the reality of my experience. I am an investigative journalist and a sexual being, and those two identities should negate each other. Why is this something that's potentially considered untouchable or risking ruining my career by admitting these things about my sexual psychology on the record when I have serious journalism to back it up? And I'm feeling hopeful. I feel like the conversations I'm beginning to have, people are really ready to let that coexist. And was that something that was told to you that like oh, publishing a book like this might ruin your career? Not completely explicitly in that I'm very lucky to be well positioned to see if it might have just the opposite effect. But I think there is a lot of questions of what do your parents think is a very common question I get. Or, but what if you have children and they see all this? Or just kind of concern for me in a way that I'm not sure if it was um. a man, they would be asking those questions. 
Yeah. And, you know, one of the questions I had is that there is so much fluidity in who you're attracted to, your sexuality. There is fluidity in your relationship styles. All of that and the giving up of societal norms in every aspect of your life. Do you feel like it has also impacted or affected how you experience your gender? Hmm. I think it has and it continues to. You know, I haven't felt I've been... I've never felt like she, her as pronouns don't fit me, but I also believe it's a construct, right? So I think that like, I kind of believe she, they would fit me just as well, but I, I don't personally, at least at this point, feel like the need to make that distinction so much as lift up the voices of other people who are living outside of these gender binaries and and kind of talk about these things as constructs that they are. I think that also just exploring my own queerness through this journey and coming into more of a confidence of owning the label of, of bisexual and seeing how I was so different in my interactions in terms of whether I was like a top or a bottom when I was with women versus men and just wondering why is that, you know, is that something inherent or is that something socialized? Am I suddenly a top with women and a submissive with men? Because that's kind of what I've been socialized to think is normal that with a woman's body, you just dominate it. Or is it really just different sides of me that come out with different genders and different people and yeah. it's all very fluid. And I think again, the answer is both and like there's probably a little bit of both to that that maybe just naturally my inner top comes out more with women but also why is that that's so interesting with your bisexuality you wrote that there's quote a certain idolization of queerness that you have that you're quote dangerously prone to and then you said this it's as if being with a woman is somehow more bold or interesting than being with a man. As if women who don't at least try being with other cis women, trans people, or non-binary folks are simply fearful of fully understanding themselves. That's a lot to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's so compelling too, because for so many people, their queerness is what makes them marginalized. It creates so many challenges in their lives. And yet due to the like luck of geography, where you grew up, where you continue to live, specific communities you're in, there's also can be this, like, as you say, idolization of queerness. Absolutely. And it was important for me to point that out and how I've continued to wrestle with that since because I think a lot of it was also about my internalized queer imposter syndrome and biphobia and feeling like I've always been attracted to women and people who, you know, are non-binary or trans. I'm attracted to people of all genders, but my dating history is much heavier on dating cis men. There are many reasons for that. And one of them was the kind of narrative in those subcultures I was around that were more liberal, kind of dismissing bisexuality as like, yeah, but everyone's kind of gay, right? Or like, yeah, certain women who are just like open to exploring, which I knew myself to be, are just kind of like, they're doing that, they're exploring. That's not really an identity, right? And so I, for so long, even after I started having romantic and sexual experiences with women, didn't feel like I had the right to claim that label because I was like, well, but I've never been in a long-term committed partnership with anyone but a cis man. So what right 
do I have to say that? And, and what right do I have to take up that space or of owning that label potentially if I've had all this quote unquote straight passing privilege? And I do think all of that has to be recognized, also addressed because that's real. Like I haven't experienced as much homophobia as most lesbians have, for example. But I also think that some of the internalized biphobia and real difficulty owning my own queerness came from well-meaning friends who were queer kind of shaming other women who were having experiences with them as just experimenting or using them for the experience, which granted, a lot of people do have that experience and I understand why they were annoyed by it. But I felt this sense of like gatekeeping from my own friends of like, that's not real or these women are just messing with us. And so I was like, oh shit, I don't wanna be one of those women. So I better not, you know, admit to being one of them until I can really say for sure, or I can really prove it that I'm like, gay enough, you know? <laughs> oh, which sucks because like, maybe it is just exploration for some people, but also that exploration can lead to like discovering a new part of your identity. Yes. I was really struck by one of the stats you had, which was that 50% of people in like the gay male community engage in like non-monogamy. I've been looking for like stats like that for a while. So I think 50% is really interesting because also when it reaches that like critical breaking point, it kind of like, in my mind, forces you to evolve. You know, like dating is hard enough. And if you to ask yourself, like, do you want to cut off like 50% of like the dating pool? Right. I mean, bisexual men are actually the group most likely to practice consensual non-monogamy, which I think is interesting because there's kind of, I think, more of the stereotype that that would probably be gay men, right? Because there's this long history of gay men having spaces where non-monogamy is explored more or kind of more of an understanding of potentially there's arrangements of, of just having sex with other people or whatever. But yeah, it's actually by men. And that I think makes a lot of sense when you stop to think about it because by men are probably, you know, in terms of cisgender populations anyway, some of the most stigmatized all around by, by cis women and cis men kind of existing in that space of people being like, you must really be gay or whatever. And so it, it kind of, if you're already outside these binaries and social norms that perhaps you're more likely to be willing to explore other options. Yeah, and just purely anecdotally, it's the queer women in my life that seem to be the most monogamous. Yeah, and I, I think that there's the idea that, you know, you hauling and that and and like kind of emotional jealousy and that the lesbians would be the least prone to it. But then, you know, in terms of people who are women or non-binary in the queer community who are also non-monogamous. That's really like very common. And I have since met a lot of people who identify as queer women or lesbians who practice non-monogamy. And some of them are the ones in the most successful non-monogamous relationships I, I know. So yeah, it kind of just depends, I guess. For you, has non-monogamy become like, I don't like the language of deal breakers, but let's just use it. Like, has it become a deal breaker for you that when you're dating, I guess you have a partner now, but if you were like single, single, like, is that a deal breaker where like they have to be comfortable with that? I think so. With the caveat that 
I am very like open to negotiation, especially like in the beginning of things or figuring out like what is the, you know, understanding that people need a foundation before they can feel safe often or understanding that there needs to be like the ability to withdraw consent or hit pause potentially in a serious relationship or potentially even have veto power. So yeah, I'm very like open to all those things that are maybe more restricted on my end. But yeah, I was pretty clear with my current partner when I met him of like, this is something I'm pretty sure I'm gonna continue to always want, but I'm open to having conversations around how that could work for you and what boundaries you need around that. Last question before I let you go. Are all polyamorous people like you also vegan? (laughs) I wish. No. (laughs) Our numbers are growing stronger. There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap in terms of people being very defensive when they meet us, like making all kinds of assumptions, saying, oh, I've wanted to try that, but I'm too weak. (laughs) And also this like kind of rejection of traditional structures and ideas around domination because you have a lot of people being non-monogamous for feminist reasons of like, I don't feel like anyone should be able to own or dictate what I do to my body. And a lot of vegans like me who are vegan for feminist reasons saying, I don't think that anyone should have the right to enslave another female reproductive system for their own benefit or gain. There's always interestingly been this overlap of the idea of women as property and animals as property. Oh my God, that was such a intelligent and smart response to my question. (laughs) Thank you for that. And thank you for the great conversation. This was fantastic. Thank you so much. And that was Rachel Kranz. Once again, her new book is called Open and it's out now. And then if you enjoyed this interview, please help us by spreading the word. That can be by sending a text, maybe a group text, posting about us on social media, doing things like that really are the number one way you can help our show continue to grow. So thank you so much to everyone who does that. I promise it's a huge, huge help. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with Glad. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week. Bye.